here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It... I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel. I'm Aida the Osman. Yes, it's back. It's back. Aida, <laughs> are you recording me? Are you recording me about the COVID? <laughs> you know I always am, really. <laughs> I was maybe going to save this for a keep it, but I think we need to jump into the Conway shenanigans right away. Because sure. I, have, I have some Jeff thoughts. Conway from Grace? Oh, yes, no. yes, okay. yes. Um... As you may know, Claudia Conway. Our queen and savior. Yes. Is she? Uh, the, the, you're closer to her age. so. Um, but, you know, she is a teenager living with her mom, Kellyanne Conway, master liar of the Trump campaign. Mm-hmm. I feel like she's still doing it, even not working there. No, I imagine her yelling at Claudia like, oh, you think I'm a bad mom? You know who's a worse mom? Barack Obama, you know. <laughs> But Claudia has been revealing on TikTok her thoughts about her mom and Trump. She did that before, but this week she revealed that her mom was positive with COVID, along with everyone else in the White House. Yeah. playing out contagion right now and um oh no you you think i wasn't playing jesse j domino this week in a victorious (laughs) at that shot and freud heavy way yeah that petri dish of a rose ceremony was just Uh, we're going to talk about all of that in a bit but on the conway situation i have just had it a little bit with grown adults online (laughs) basically writing claudia conway fanfic you know, it's like calling her um, Woodward and Bernstein. I think the the joke got tired three weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and everyone referring to her as Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams in Dick. Like that joke was funny the first time I saw it as well. Good movie, though. <laughs> Amazing movie. You know, I'm just imagining some 36-year-old sitting on their couch, popping some popcorn, pouring some red wine, and pulling up Claudia Conway's TikTok, like, go watch Criterion. <laughs> I am happy with Claudia Conway's output. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we should revel in her strange Gen Z specific chaos streak. I understand that. <laughs> but it's more shocking that we we don't have more like lingering teens of Republican assholes around to expose these people. Like, her novelty is what shocks me. Like, these people are so blatantly horrible. How are there not just bystanders who also have ASMR channels <laughs> telling us all about this shit all the time? It feels weird that she's the only one. Yeah. But I, right. I do, I will, I, maybe I'm, I'm one of the people that you're critiquing, Ira, because I do respect the resilience of, like, a 15, 16-year-old 
to openly criticize her mother. I mean, it's easy with a mother like Kellyanne Conway, but it's fair. It's like, girl, go to 10th grade. Like, go find something I'm not, new. So <laughs> I'm, not dragging, I'm not dragging her specifically. Like, okay. I'm, keep doing what you want to do, especially living in that home with the horrible woman and a father who is just as opportunistic and, frankly, more annoying yeah, I'm, than Kellyanne. <laughs> somehow, somehow more annoying their home is actually uh, uh, the haunting of Hill House, just twenty four hours a day. So, uh, but it looks horrific, you know. And you know, I worry about this girl's well being, uh, especially dealing with all this, especially in the middle of COVID. You know, especially because she, she has COVID. Yeah. Yes. Thanks to and her she mother, can't, <laughs> she can't reach out to other people who might be helpful in getting her away from what seems like a very tense home situation to say the least and i just think that the glee that a lot of people have with coming up with memes and like coming up with um ideas for her to host a cw talk show called tick talk which (laughs) was suggested by the creator of the bold type on twitter i was like can we chill out well i was gonna do a cover album called the emancipation of cc but i'll put it away i'll put it away (laughs) (laughs) i'll put it away uh I just think there is a healthy medium to be had, and there are far too many people who seem borderline obsessed. (laughs) Oh, you're coming down on meme culture right now, bitch. I just want to say, this bitch over here can't go five seconds without talking in a Whitney Houston meme, and now the memes are out of control. You can't see the difference in memeing Whitney Houston and a 15-year-old girl, Louis Vertel? Uh, Really? Well... This fifteen-year-old really? girl, you You're would meme Jojo. You're you would meme Jojo. Me. Wow, Jojo we, is not fifteen. She was fifteen once upon a time. If we had memes around then, you'd be leaving Get Out right now to COVID. You'd be doing that. Was she living with possibly abusive parents? <laughs> the abuse in the household, if should should be noted as such. It's it's a tense situation. I agree. Yeah, well, mind you, Ira, the memes are moving so fast right now in this COVID domino rally world of the Republican White House that I do feel like by the time this comes out, maybe it will already be over. So I don't know. Mm, I don't know. I feel like adult people have been writing Claudia fanfic for months. So I don't think it will be over by the time this comes out. It is nice to exalt somebody named Claudia, though. I mean, just like (laughs) I associate it so hard with the Babysitter's Club. So to bring up like Claudia Schiffer and Claudia Schiffer. Who else do we have? Mm. See? It's yeah, nice. exactly no one. It's such a bitchy 80s name. It's really shocking that somebody born in the 2000s is named Claudia. So I respect... That's, this is the, the first time I've respected Kellyanne Conway. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to point out that I find it weird. Okay? It's getting weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there we go. There's a meme. There's a meme. <laughs> a meme. There's a meme of an adult woman. <laughs> See? Mm-hmm. Came right back to it. <laughs> I mean, are you really sitting there watching Claudia Conway live on TikTok? Not live. No, no, I mean, no. I watch the I watch the compilations. I buy the greatest hits. You know what I mean? <laughs> I buy now. That's what I call Claudia Conway thirty four or whatever. Uh, all right. Well, coming up this episode, we'll be talking about Mariah Carey's new memoir and audiobook, "The Outbreak at the White House and Trump's COVID Theater." Plus, we'll be joined by our very first Real Housewife on the podcast. Bethany Frankel. We'll be right back. As if you didn't get enough last week, today is the first vice presidential debate of the 2020 election. 
Senator Kamala Harris and VP Mike Pence will be taking the stage tonight, October 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Watch myself and the team over at Crooked Live on crooked.com slash debate. We'll be streaming the whole thing along with our group thread where we will be breaking down what's happening, giving our live commentary, and hoping Mike Pence does not infect Kamala. Watch with us at crooked.com slash debate. And we're back to talk about the culture, talk about what we've been consuming. I don't know about you all, but truly the only thing that I've been doing for the past few days has been listening to Mariah Carey's voice. The soundtrack to my everything, yes. And then not just listening to her voice, but going back to listen to her voice in other formats as well. So really just, she has scored my entire week. I have to say, I messed up. I did not listen to the audiobook. I just read the actual book like I'm... A pilgrim, like a fucking pilgrim. It's the 18th century in here, exactly. You hobbled out of your covered wagon. It is shocking that you opted to read a book. Yeah. (laughs) Instead of just listen to it. But the book, of course, is... Is the meaning of Mariah Carey, Mariah Carey's new memoir, uh, co-written with Michaela Angela Davis. It is sprawling. Mm-hmm. It is maybe one of my favorite celebrity memoirs I've ever, I want to say, read, but <laughs> listened to. So the, the book came out, and also the audio book, but she reads the audio book, and it is maybe one of the wildest audio experiences I've ever had because she's not mm-hmm. just reading it um, and like interpreting it. She sings, you know, it really feels like you're like listening to, I don't know, a Mariah Carey podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've never, I, I've never cried while listening to an audiobook as many times as I listened to Mariah. And I mean, that's not a mark necessarily of achievement, but you know, she's telling the story of her life and, and does an amazing job. And I really felt like I was in Mariah Carey's penthouse apartment, a place I would never be allowed to be in, (laughs) and was just talking to her about her life. So I really did enjoy that aspect of it. She is this weird combination of untouchable pop goddess who Mm -hmm. always is like bathed in a champagne light and wearing like something slinky because she has a very old Hollywood idea of glamour. And Mm -hmm. then the way in which she talks about her experience is so like, Yo, this was so bad. <laughs> like, it's, like, it's, it's, it's like really like kind of sullen and down to earth. And it so she the, the multitude she contains always are each delicious, and the way she articulates it is always unexpected. The childhood stuff, which we'll get into, is crazy already. Wild, I was yeah. surprised that the majority of the book, what like 75% of the book, is Tommy Matola stuff. Mm-hmm. I understand that was like the relationship that got her the stardom and you know propelled her throughout the 90s or whatever. But really, it's just you really get a sense of how much it had been weighing on her for 20 years to talk about specifically that era. Mm-hmm. And I'm also surprised by when the Honey era happened and she had the new kind of R&B sensibility in her music, yeah. how much that was a liberation for her. People like Madonna have made me think, oh, your style changes in music just because it has to. You have to evolve and like you have to pick a new outfit and a new persona. But for Mariah Carey, it was life-saving that she finally got to make that music and that really hit home 
for me. I understood that. Yeah, I felt I was feeling really guilty. I've had to abandon these kind of antiquated ideas that Mariah was just some vapid diva. That's always how I'd seen her. But now to listen to this book and to understand that that was a persona she was putting forward because she's a sincere woman with a penchant for luxury and a penchant for theatrics, not necessarily that she is just that quintessential vapid girl. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is there's a lot of dramaturgy in the book that goes to let's say Marilyn Monroe, you know, and um, her life as Norma Jean. And, you know, we've, we've heard um, her reference Norma Jean on songs before, you know, like the recent album Caution, um, the song Giving Me Life. You know, she talks about how she's feeling herself like she's Norma Jean. And I always just sort of been like, okay, you know, she's like in her Marilyn Monroe, you know, like vibe. Uh, everyone's had a Marilyn Monroe poster uh, <laughs> on their dorm wall before, you know, like it's just mm -hmm. an American cultural uh -huh. icon, you know, but really understanding how she would connect with Marilyn's upbringing, you know, with, with her mom who was in and out of her life um, and how that correlated to Mariah's upbringing. And, you know, just when she talks about purchasing Marilyn's piano, you know, and like putting it in her penthouse, you know, it. you see her trying to find some sort of solace in the way another woman who was probably misunderstood, sexy, but sometimes too sexy for people and just sort of glamorous. Um, she also connects that to when she's working on Glitter, you know, and how she had conflicts with her acting coach and like connects it to, you know, the whole um, Marilyn and Lee Strasberg um, relationship too, you know, so like there were uh, so many things that I felt like she was able to just put down on paper finally as a this is who I am you think of me as like Aida said you know the glamorous diva you know who's just sort of like funny and swilling champagne and like a little vapid and you know we always remember that TRL moment mm -hmm. uh, right. and for me the most interesting part was her recollection of the TRL moment, which I remember watching live. Right, me too. You know, and hearing it from her point of view, you sort of do sort of realize that Carson is driving a lot of what's happening on screen. You know, it's his reactions that make it seem like, oh, Mariah has lost it, you know? Yes. Because the audience there is watching like Mariah Carey waltz in, you know? Like, and we've seen a myriad of bonkers things happen on TRL before. Yeah. So I think that like, unless the person who is the moderator lets you know that this is crazed, um, you're not going to think of it in that way. And she makes a specific point of how it was a stunt gone wrong. Her showing up to TRL with like an ice cream truck, pushing popsicles um, onto the audience members because it was the label's way of making Loverboy her lead single that didn't go to number one like all her other lead singles did. Mm -hmm. It went to number two, which is hilarious <laughs> in yeah, retrospect right. now. Oops. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, imagine a label freaking out about a song only getting to number two now. Right. Yeah. Especially in that era of huge selling singles and stuff, yeah. Yeah, imagining that it only went to number two is like, that still sold a shit ton of music because people were still buying albums then too mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. singles. But um, she talks about how it was a stunt gone wrong, but... Carson plays it off as what's going on like Mariah like she's lost it she's stripping he has the improv skills of like a rutabaga why can't you <laughs> fucking she make points this out fun? that even if he didn't know like 
everyone at MTV involved in producing that show knew that Mariah was coming to the show. Yeah, his his take on it, I'll say he pretended to be bewildered. Mm-hmm. And that led people to believing she was there unannounced or mm-hmm. that it was just totally off the rails. When in fact, the one thing she says that's worrying is she goes, I'm a little stressed out. Mm-hmm. And or whatever she says, I forget the exact wording. Yeah. And that might make you think like, she's on the verge of something else crazy going on. But really, Carson does go that along. It really is like a, it's not just her generating it. Mm-hmm. Also, 2001 was just a precarious year where if you took your shirt off, apparently you're losing your mind. I don't know mm. what was going on. When I go back to watch that, of course, because I didn't watch it live. So when I went back most recently after listening to the memoir to watch the clip, I was like, why did this woman get demonized for taking her shirt off? Why was the the media frenzy the way that it was. What was going on in that time that a woman has lost her mind if she doesn't have a full script for a publicity stunt? Right. I mean, 2001 in pop music in particular, that is Britney's slave for you era, you know? So that (laughs) is the era where she is also rebelling against being called, you know, like a stripper or, you know, like a bad influence on young girls, you know, for wanting to dance and look sexy you know that's the whole thing i'm a slave for you is about you know so like it is weird to step back into that moralistic era of pop music i felt like we experienced some of it weirdly when the um WAP video came out yeah 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 definitely uh it felt like such a throwback to the early 2000s of something like this happening we know so much more about how the sausage is made, et cetera, <laughs> you know, now. Like, we know how television works, I think, in a way that a lot of us didn't even know in the early 2000s. So when she brings up the fact that, like, I didn't show up unannounced. Like, I'm Mariah Carey, but, like, you can't just, like, show up unannounced on a live TV show with an ice cream cart, you know, and interrupt the flow of the show, right? Yeah. You know, like, what if Beyonce or someone else had been performing? <laughs> Um, so now we know that that is not something that she could have done unannounced. But when you're watching that back then, it's easier for people to play it off as she's crazed. Also, I think, and we get a lot of this when we talk about Tommy Mottola and the abusive relationship and marriage that they had together. But women, of course, were revered in such a different way in pop culture during that time. I think maybe her appearance on TRL maybe destroyed or redefined whatever version of femininity Mariah Carey had been pushing at that time. And I remember Butterfly was actually my first physical CD that I owned as a kid. And my mom mm. had this, my mom had this like cream colored satin pillowcase and I would tie it around my little five-year-old stick body <laughs> and try and look like Mariah. I looked like a lavish praying mantis. It was adorable. <laughs> and to this day, I blame Mariah Carey for my earth tone complex. Like it takes a particularly <laughs> beautiful and sultry artist to kind of make brown and and cream and exciting album cover. And she just had this delicate nature to her that I think when she went on TRL, it was a high pedestal from which to fall. So I think that that's also why a lot of the tabloids blew it up in such a way that was more destructive than it really was. You're right. Like the way she is always, or specifically around that era, sold herself as a pinup has Mm -hmm. always had a touch of like, of untouchability. So when she becomes accessible and in fact, fallible-seeming, it seems like she's already taken a huge tumble. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think what really helped her with her career was gliding back into that untouchableness, you know? She's relatable, in a sense, because of social media, and she stays connected with her fans, the lambs, and she talks a lot <laughs> about how she used to 
connect with them on her website back then. Um, but Mariah seems much more back in that, like the Hollywood glamour that she was initially um, yearning for and not really someone who you can access every day. There's also a compilation YouTube video going around of all these different interviewers basically talking to Mariah about dressing too sexy, including on the Rosie O'Donnell show. Mm. Uh, Howard Stern and Robin Quivers talk about it. And in at least a couple of the interviews, she shuts it down by saying, the beginning of my career, I had to be covered up from the neck to my ankle. So me wearing like a, a cocktail dress shouldn't blow your mind ever. And you, you realize just how much of that is her taking control of her image and how much we don't know from the outside how much a pop star's image is in their control often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see that with someone like Billie Eilish now, right? Where, where she'll talk about how she specifically wears what she wears because she doesn't want her body to be sexualized, you know? But you can look back and think, oh, Mariah Carey looks gorgeous, you know, singing like All Alone in Love, you know, in like yeah. her, in her jeans um, and, you know, like a black t-shirt and you don't know about the fight behind the scenes of people being like, Maybe that's even too revealing for them, you know? Um, And particularly what I love about the book is that there's always been this weird debate online about, you know, black versus white for her, you know? Or this idea of, you know, like, oh, she went with hip-hop, you know, to sort of um, sell more albums, you know? Like, dipping into the culture, you know? But I think it really cements the fact that, like, she had a hard childhood trying to deal with the fact that people couldn't understand that her father was black and her mom was white, you know, and she has always seen herself as a biracial woman, um, but she calls herself a black woman often in the book, you know, and it is, you see that that path that she went on, you know? Yeah. Uh, and additionally, I want to tell people specifically to seek out the part of this book where she becomes famous because the springboard from nothing and uh, scraping to get background work on acts like Brenda K. Starr, mm. which I'm interested in things like background singers because the like whisper network of people knowing each other and recommending people for different tracks. It's like, Mm -hmm. that's how like to borrow a term, you just said the sausage is made like it's, and that's how she gained a reputation among Mm -hmm. vocalists. And then finally she meets Tommy Mottola at a party. And then within seemingly six months, she's princess Mariah and stuck in a palace and Rapunzel and all these things. Yeah. But Mm. the moment before that happens is really, really interesting. Her talking about living in New York. And I also just want to point out since we talked about, the TRL quote unquote meltdown, you still got to revisit the MTV Cribs with Mariah Carey, where mm. she references having Marilyn Monroe's piano and says she can't even show it on camera. And at the time, I remember seeing that and thinking, why does Marilyn Monroe have a piano and why can't we fucking see it? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> now I realize it's, first of all, incredibly expensive. I think she said it's the most expensive piece of art she owns. Mm-hmm. But secondly, how it was tied to the only happiness in Marilyn Monroe's childhood and mm-hmm. Mariah related to that. That was really n- a nice loose end to tie up after years of exalting that wild and very funny Cribs appearance, which you should look up on <laughs> Daily Motion or wherever it lives now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think in retrospect, because of the TRL moment, like you, people try to recontextualize things like that Cribs episode and say that, oh, she's always been there, you know, like loosey-goosey. Mm-hmm. But when you listen to her describing moments in the book, like even her friendship with DeBrat when Tommy oh, has her when Tommy has her trapped in the house with like security guards. Girl, um, and it's watching her King. every move. Uh, and DeBrat's like, if Mariah wants some French fries, she's gonna get some <laughs> fucking French fries. Um 
that also recontextualizes the fact that this woman maybe seems a little wacky because like for the largest part of the conception of her career she is Nora from a doll's house you know yeah. <laughs> she she is literally trapped in Tommy's home he has security guards and cameras watching her daily you know and like of course once she breaks free from that she's like I'm going to be sexy and do whatever the fuck I want you know and she even talks about how all the music videos she made up until probably around Honey were filmed within a mile or two of where they lived like her yeah. life was so confined to that space and he she, controlled and the he, directors she di- and she talks about how she t- had to direct the fantasy video with ODB herself right right and also specifically she talks about giving a concert and i think in Synecdoche the yes. one where she yeah she uh she talks about how she didn't understand why there was so much, so many police around the area, and she was super worried and had to be told, oh, these people are here to see you, because she had no concept of how famous she had become living in that compound from mm-hmm. the end of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one of the darkest moments is the fact that there were friends of Mariah's who gathered a scrapbook together of notes that she had gotten from other famous stars who were like, we love you so much, and... Tommy saw the scrapbook and burned it before she could ever see it. Sounds like an <laughs> ideal marriage to me. Somebody does a nice thing for you and they immediately destroy it so you can't see it. Also, of course, you get to hear about her dalliance with Derek Jeter, which is a very interesting and liberating DJ! for her. DJ! DJ, play that song! Play that song. And then you get to also, like, in my head, I'm thinking of it as scenes, so I listen to it in the audiobook, but the dinner where Tommy Mottola decides Thanksgiving is just canceled now because he doesn't want Mariah to have any freedom at all. And uh, most Because she talks back to him with like Diddy there. (laughs) (laughs) And just all of the touch, it's such a touching book and I recommend that Mm -hmm. if you guys, just go and read it or listen to it. She talks so openly about the violence in her home, the not so savory Mm -hmm. characters that hung around her family and were also in her family which is the devastating part. Mm -hmm. Like her her sister giving her a Valium at 12 Mm -hmm. was a moment for me where I was like, oh my Uh, God, Mariah has been through so much more than I could have ever even anticipated. So, and that theme... And the sister threw boiling water on her. It's unbelievable. Scalding, just... A theme of exploitation that unfortunately carried over into her mm-hmm. adult life too. And it, it just, I feel so much closer to Mariah. And mm-hmm. and for when people talk about how, like, whether or not they see her as, like, black or white, you know, like the moment where she talks about how her mom weaponizes the fact that she is a full white woman against Mariah to, like, call the police on her, um, <laughs> how she would often do that to Mariah's father and her darker-skinned siblings, too. You know, it it just is unfortunate, and it is it, that's the part that made me sad, you know, watching this woman, you know, with a mixed-race identity uh, witnessing her mother, who should be, you know, a source of, like, comfort yeah. uh, and safety in her life constantly weaponizing whiteness against people who are Mariah's family, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The book also makes you grateful that she is seemingly doing well now because after having read it, the only person I can really compare her to in terms of what she's been through is Whitney Houston in terms Mm of she started off explosively. Like you couldn't start off any bigger, but also her personality specifically, as strong as it was, was totally stifled. So Mm -hmm. it took forever for us to be revealed to the Mariah Carey we now know and love, who's like, you know, 
Miss Piggy, but a little bit more extra somehow, you know, in terms of loving glamour and loving showbiz and, and, and yeah. the art of being a celebrity. The, the thing about Whitney, too, is like the Whitney had the addiction issues, you know, like when you look at even the many comebacks that she had, but the million dollar bill era, she still doesn't seem fully like Whitney, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting to think about how Mariah was able to come back with when she gets to like touch my body goes to number one again like it's her 18th and it's like oh yeah her career starts going back on the upswing after touch my body right yeah and also of course uh, another prime difference is that Mariah Carey has always written her own music Mm. so that has always given her a leg up in like redefining herself whereas Whitney had to deal with whatever was basically given to her yeah Mm -hmm. also this book was reaffirming in the way that you're reminded that some artists are truly just meant to be doing the work that they're doing because Mariah has Mm -hmm. been so passionate about songwriting almost to an obsessive extent that she was doing it naturally she could hear melodies in her head and she had to get those out of her you kind of hear those things from artists and that kind of sound Hackneyed or trite in a way, and then you hear it from Mariah, and it's so genuine. It's just, it's what the woman has to do. She really can't live without songwriting. There's a, her recollection of coming up with Hero, which, by mm-hmm. the way, I, f- I totally forgot was for some Dustin Hoffman, Gina Davis movie I never think about. <laughs> and, and she comes up with the melody, and then, of course, it, and then Tommy hears the potential in it, and it, it was originally supposed to be sung by Gloria Estefan, mm-hmm. and then. Mariah gets to do it and it becomes like the, the definitive ballad of her career. And I did not have any respect for that song until I heard this story and how yeah. she basically just, you know, mm-hmm. Mariah trilled it into being. <laughs> yeah, she unschmaltzified it and made it a, a real song worth listening to. And not that we've ever been people who, you know, like disrespected Mariah and her songwriting abilities, you know, but yeah. people do that. And it is, it's nice to hear her talk about how, you know, like when she's with Brenda K. Starr, right? You know, like mm-hmm. Brenda and other people are like, Mariah, no, the songs that you've written, the songs that we hear in your demos, we want them. We want to record them. And she's like, no, I want to keep them for myself. Yeah. You know? So, like, she had been working hard. And I think the book really drives home the fact that um, a lot of everything that happens in her career is luck and, you know, and happenstance, too, as happens with everyone's careers. But... That's hard work, you know, and she she put that work in. And she if, rules. If yeah. Tommy hadn't Sheer found time. her at that party, she still would have been famous, mm-hmm. right? Definitely yeah. a force of yes. nature for sure. So you read it. I feel like you have to listen to part of it at some point too, Lewis, because I it know. is truly it's an a musical that I've it's never had. It's a musical. It's an experience yeah. I've never <laughs> had with a book before. Because she will be explaining, and then I was writing. Um, touch my body and then it goes into touch my body and it's like mm. she she sings basically every chapter opens with her singing whatever song of hers correlates to the story she's about to tell and it really is just this entire auditory experience that is it, my week has felt better yeah she sings a portion of a punk album that she wrote that oh, i don't that, that way <laughs> we have not talked about that what <laughs> That was during the recording of Daydream. Yeah. Yes. She, she was like, needed to get some angst out, which uh-huh. you know is the theme of the book. And <laughs> she re- records an alternative album on the fly where she's sort of a pseudo goth character. Mm-hmm. And she claims that the antagonist in the Heartbreaker video that she plays is a, is a form of this character. But God, it really makes you crave 
hearing this, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll guess Alanis-esque album that yeah. she made during that time, because mm-hmm. it would have been exactly that era. Um, but she just made it for the hell of it. And then the people around her, like, said they loved the songs. The band really got into it. It, it. That, to me, really said something about her as a person, that she, even after all of the uh, the oppressive nature of what she was dealing with, she was like, I, I can solve this by making more music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just highlighting the fact that she was a woman constantly dealing with people trying to figure out how to market her identity. You know, and she mm-hmm. talks about how if she were just a white woman uh, doing emotional songs like that, it would be easier to market her. Right. Yeah. Uh, and she wishes that she could have done something like that. I'm I'm sure she has it, and I want to hear it. <laughs> Give it. Yeah. <laughs> I want that Etheridge light angst. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's many more things that we could tell you about the book, but you need to just go fucking read it or Mariah Carey yeah. should come on keep it and tell us about them I love when keep it goes to a <laughs> memoir place we talked about Demi Moore that was one of the best times of my life we may, <laughs> we, we may just need like a spinoff for memoirs yeah <laughs> the memoir book club call me crazy by Anne Heche we gotta get into that one too before we go who else do we want a memoir from that we feel like could give this level of like iconic Janet mm. for sure Oh my uh, God! We don't know anything. Please tell we us. We know what the nothing about on. that woman. <laughs> <laughs> I think if I'm staying in the music realm, you know who I want to know about? Who's constantly serving but doesn't really talk about her personal life? Missy Elliott. And I, I yes. promise there are skeletons in that closet that need to come out. They're probably dancing skeletons. They got big hefty bags on them. And I just want to know <laughs> what's happening. No, you're right. We know nothing. And also, especially because she's so famously affiliated with so many people and yes. has worked with so many people. She's just the kookiest fucking writer. Where does this mm-hmm. shit come from? So mm-hmm. Even some of the people who just show up as like bit players in Mariah's memoir sound so interesting and full in a way that we've never really thought about them. Like... Will Smith comes off so interesting in this book in a way that, like, we don't really talk about Will Smith anymore. You know, like, early 90s Will Smith. I want to read about that Will Smith. Like, DeBrat, mm-hmm. I want to read her book. I want to read Jermaine Dupri's. Uh, Lenny Kravitz pops up in this book for a bit. Oh, yes, bet when he was known as Romeo Blue. I had forgotten yeah. all about that. Do yeah. the Escape Girls, does Candy Burst have a memoir? I feel like she's someone that would have jumped to that, but... I mean, I don't know if she I does. Don't I think so. I think I don't we're think just so. seeing her on Housewives. Yeah. And the mass Singer. <laughs> yes. You mentioned Derek Jeter. What was really interesting about that is she talked about that relationship was the one that helped her sort of transition away from Tommy Mottola. And, you know, how after her divorce was finalized in Santo Domingo, like she was on Melrose Place, um, she flew immediately to Florida so she could have sex with him for the first time. And she wanted to wait until it was after she was divorced. And talks about how his racial makeup of his family was the same as hers. So that yeah. sort of helped her realize that, you know, um, she wasn't alone uh, and that there was another star going through the same thing as her. And that makes me want to read Derek Cheater's memoir. Now. Exactly. I sure. want to know because it, there's especially a buildup. I mean, other than us knowing that he had an Irish mother and a black father, which was kind of alluring to Mariah because she had the same thing, like you said, Ira. Also, she reveals that Derek was obsessed with her and had posters of her and then was like made it his mission to date her and then did it. So I just want to know what happened there. And then eventually she just goes on to be like, it was fun, but like I could simply not talk to the boy about anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> darling. <laughs> <had to> end it. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever she says, a darling. 
Oh my God. Spin a different track, DJ, please. <laughs> She's like the last living person who can say darling. I mean, truly, yeah. Tulu the Bank had died how many years ago? Uh, you know? So thank, thank you, Mariah, specifically for that. Well, her and Millie Bobby Brown. Right. <laughs> I'll, get, I'll, get, I'll get to that in my keep it, my Drake keep it. So. <laughs> uh, well, when we're back, we'll be joined by someone who definitely does not say darling <laughs> Bethany Frankel. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. <laughs> Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Our guest today has done it all, truly. The entrepreneur who brought a skinny girl, the philanthropist founder of Be Strong, the producer and star of the upcoming HBO Max show, The Big Shot with Bethany, and most recently, she's trying to put us out of business with her new podcast, Just What's Be, up with that? Yeah. With Bethany Frankel. <laughs> Please welcome Bethany Frankel. Hi. How are you? We're great. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yes, it is so exciting to have you on this show when I feel like I've seen you for years, like way back to, uh, Lewis and I are excited to ask about it, The Apprentice. Oh, oh wow. duh. We, yes. we both were some of the few who watched this. Preparing for this interview, I was like, I'm going back to Martha. I want to see it all again. Yeah. That's original. That's amazing. I love yeah. that. Thank you. What shocks me about it is, I don't know what I expected going back, but to me, you seem exactly like the same person. Like, the personality is all there. The jokes are there. The TV readiness is there. And so, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that I think you're one of the most kind of ready-baked TV stars we've had in the past 20 years or whatever, but was it as easy as it looked for you to become a, a massively popular reality star when it just seems baked into who you are as an organism? It's so true that you say that. I Years ago, it's funny because Andy and Cohen and I talked about this when he was on my podcast, and I, 
he said that he always wanted to sort of do something where he could be himself. And I was the same exact way. I was trying to act in my 20s. And I don't think I was really that good. And I used to think, what if there was something where you could be yourself? This is prior to reality shows. And a host really isn't the same. That's just sort of reading a prompter and being more canned. When I did, I did The Housewives for years after The Apprentice. And then I came back and I was on Andy's show. And he said, you're really good at this thing. Like, <laughs> it was a surprise. I mean, it's just, I don't know how to explain it. I just know how to do it. I just understand how to reveal myself, be honest about myself and be producing in my mind at the same time. That's what the DP always said. He said, I've never seen someone who can be producing and be in the show at the same time. And not meaning like crafting what I'm doing, meaning understanding that when two women are talking about a Chanel sample sale, that I'm like, oh my God, this is all getting cut out. Like, <laughs> so when I used to go on these, these trips on the housewives, I would get there a day late and I would leave a day early and all the stuff that happened before I went would kind of end up on the editing room floor. And when I uh, left, the, the same thing would happen. Because I just understood that like when we're there, we're working and we're lighting it up and we're connecting tissue and we're just, what's the point of why we're all here and what are we all talking about? So I sort of just get that and I totally forget that the cameras are there. It's entertaining and it's fun and it's alive. And so it's been an interesting ride and what a crazy way to become successful. Mm -hmm. I just want to say that you articulated something so beautifully, which is you have two things. You love to talk, but you also love getting to the point. That is the magic <laughs> mix. Yes, yeah. Exactly. Uh, I don't do small talk. Yeah. <laughs> Going off of what you were just saying, too, you know, I feel like you were one of the first people um, I would see in the context of like the Bravo shows who knows in your brain, like you said, the producing of knowing that it's getting to the point, you know, this is um, what people want to see. I was thinking about this recently with um, the Kardashians is ending, you know, and like that is a specific brand of show where people love to see them like sitting down and like talking about the Chanel purse for 30 minutes and nothing really happens. Um, what was in you that made you sort of realize like um, I'm here to be able to give myself but also like I'm thinking about like how people are taking this in. Was that from your first season or was that like you learning later and then applying that to your life? Cause no, I was born that way. That mm -hmm. was, that's just like mm -hmm. a born, I was born that way. I started that show and Andy said, she's the Greek chorus and the narrator. And I didn't even <laughs> realize, I didn't know what that meant. And I later mm -hmm. realized that it meant that I was sort of narrating and the one who was talking to the audience, I would explain the Hamptons is the place where, you know, rich people throw everything they've ever owned in their car and make a mass exodus after Memorial Day and act like they're going to fucking Malaysia when it's an hour and a half away. Like <laughs> just, just stuff like that, that like the, and I'm, it's missing on the show now. Mm -hmm. There's no anchor and there's no communicator to the audience about what the fuck is going on. Mm -hmm. That's what is one thing that you need as stupid as these shows are and as superfluous and ridiculous you still need somebody driving the program. Mm -hmm. You know, there needs to be a driver of the program and the producers can't tell people, say this, do that. It just wouldn't even work anyway. So mm -hmm. someone needs to understand what the point of what everyone's doing is and how to call things out and how to sort of show the other side of the coin. And it's just an interesting thing. And, and it's unlike any other thing. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like you had a different relationship with people who would watch you on TV then as opposed to people watching maybe other people in the cast with you because you were the one doing that narrator role and so they would think of you the way they would think of other people differently. I realized that just recently. We, there was a charity event that I was a part of and we were going through um, the 
Trip to Tequila one, and that's a specific episode where you are basically narrating that entire episode, and without you there, it seems like there'd be no structure. You know, anybody that gets stopped, like, they want to see, you know, the Countess is, like, a larger-than-like caricature of herself, and everybody, even if they hate somebody who's horrible, like, they're still their character. So when you see them out, you're seeing a character mm-hmm. and you celebrate them for whatever their character is. I feel like, well, when people see me, they say, we'd be best friends. I'm mm-hmm. just like you. We're the same. Cause everybody thinks that they're that sort of Greek chorus and seeing it clearly. So I love that. You know, I, and I'm like, they're like, Oh my God, I feel like I know you. Cause you kind of do know me. I mean, that is really who I am. It's one part of who I am and I'm doing the podcast. That's another part of who I am. And I'm with, seven people in my house today running a business meeting. That's another part, but they're all sort of infused in anything that I do. I mean, I, I take as seriously a cocktail that I'm making as a business that I'm doing as a train wreck television show that I'm producing. I'm just sort of a person that's all in for whatever I'm doing. Are you too impatient and good at making reality TV to watch reality TV? Like I imagine someone like flying a new show for you, watching it and you'd be like, absolutely not. Like three seconds in, I, I already know what this is gonna be, et cetera. Well, I don't watch a lot of TV and I don't watch The Housewives anymore. And probably because it's become very derivative and for no one's fault. Like I think I was probably the first fashion show-ish photo sh- cover photo shoot that we did on there. Not that I'm some genius. It's just that I had one and we did it and a book cover shoot. And you know, how many times can it be like, you didn't support me. You didn't come to my charity event. <laughs> I know none of us are all really friends and we're friends for television, but we're supposed to support each other at these events when we would never be doing this on the months that we're off. Like, and you know, let's go on a trip, but I don't want there to be any drama on this trip. We don't want there to be any drama. Like when the only reason for the trip is drama, and the only reason that the producers are having the trip and the network is having the trip is for drama. So it's sort of like it's like you 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 know the script. I mean, after any show, even if it's I don't care if it's scripted or unscripted, after a while you know the beats and you know the way it goes. So I feel I don't know if it's a lot more fighting, but the truth is, it used to be more nuanced and it used to be more. Um, light. I mean, even from the fact that I would be like this getting interviews, it wasn't like lashes and, and glam caravans <laughs> and it wasn't so produced. So, and the, the arguing wasn't so produced either a big deal. There was an, I'm up here, you're down here argument with Kelly Ben Simone. That was like an iconic argument today. If you're not ripping someone's weave off or pulling someone's leg off, <laughs> it's probably not you know, big enough. So I like smaller. I like smaller comedy. I like smaller nuance. I don't need, everything doesn't need to be New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. What was the point, um, and maybe you just sort of figured this early on, um, when you realized that you were able to specifically use the show for moments like selling Skinny Girl Margarita, or then like even your um, Be Strong initiative, you know, like being able to be like, I'm giving the people what they want, but I can also use this to really push my own agenda in a way that seems organic because it never seemed like ridiculous like when a lot of people always have singles, you know, like especially like Kim or something on Atlanta, you know, you see those. Yours was more here is a business. I'm on this show. This is free press. I That was my reason for doing the show. Mm-hmm. And it was there's no reason to be on television if there's not if it's not a vehicle for something else. I mean, if you need the actual paycheck, which the paycheck got so enormous for me that I was there at the end for the paycheck and for no other real reason. I, I like the comedy too, but I get that elsewhere. But um, I that was the reason I did the show. And I was looking around and watching women 
showing off cars that weren't even their own and getting facials and furs. They just were, they just were dying to show people how rich they were. And I wasn't rich and I really wanted to kind of make something of myself. And I was the question mark character that no one knew what was going to happen with me and where she going to go. Is she going to get married? Is she going to have a kid? Is she going to get out of that studio apartment and become successful? <laughs> so I just instinctively, and it's funny because I talked to Paris Hilton on my podcast mm-hmm. and she said when she got on the simple life, it clicked in for her real quick that she knew what this was. This was the platform for, for the rest of it versus it being a superficial, you know, airhead moment. And for me, I knew right away. And I, I knew people talk about manifesting or versus making things happen. I manifest, I knew that I was getting a spinoff. I cannot explain how I knew I can't explain where it lived in me, but I just, (laughs) I'm good at seeing the chessboard, not just the pieces. So I knew that I would turn that into a spinoff. But while I was on the show, I decided to be myself and be honest about my life. And that's why people bought into my products because I was being truthful about who I am. So I had a brand that they could trust. It didn't seem inauthentic because it wasn't inauthentic, but I also didn't mind showing flaws. I didn't mind if you saw that it was the truth. Mm -hmm. This logo sucks. She looks like she has saggy (laughs) pancake boobs. Like we were going through a logo thing. You know, you go through what's going wrong and what's going right. When the skinny girl margarita, truthfully, we could, my partner didn't spend enough money ahead of the brand for it to be in stores. And I was ripping my own hair out that stores were complaining that they didn't have the product. I'm like, oh my God, like we didn't make enough product. This is ridiculous. This isn't like a product bag where, where they should be waiting months for it. So I was honest. I was warts and all about my personal life and my professional life. And so I think that that makes people invest in you because you're taking them on the journey. And with relief work, it's what was going on. And it was beyond what was going on. The relief work that we've done has been unprecedented in private relief work in history what we did in Bahamas and Puerto Rico. And um, recently with PPE, we've raised over $50 million in aid and relief and distributed aid from all over the country to Puerto Rico and the Bahamas and built homes and built schools. And for PPE, we've delivered over $20 million uh, of PPE. It was every state, all 50 states, 2 million units, 1.1 million hazmat suits to the state of New York, 1 million masks nationwide and swabs and other things. I mean, and hacking through criminals and, you know, being a gangster and using a machete to like not get killed literally or robbed or, I mean, it was, it was really intense. So I've done some crazy shit. So the show could not, not show it because I wasn't going to be on the show. There's no way to be on the show and do that. So that's one of the great things. Um, I was listening to your podcast, and of course, you are a just natural fit to host a podcast. I don't know if that sounds like a backhanded compliment. It's what we do. So that means I think <laughs> yeah. that to be a compliment. Um, Thank you. But you had this amazing story about how you're friends with Sia, and you had this funny story that I'll let people discover for themselves. But it occurred to me, you have such a dynamite personality that you naturally attract what I'll call fabulous people. And I was wondering what celebrities you've met that turned out to be kindred spirits that you wouldn't have guessed uh, intuitively. Sia, I didn't know who she was. So like, I didn't even know. It's not that I didn't know who she was when I saw her. I didn't know. I didn't even heard of her. I'm not, I'm like very under a rock about certain things. So Mm -hmm. we became really good friends and we really, really care about each other. Um, Kelly Ripa and I really, really get along. Like we just get along. I like her. It's not like we're best friends. I text her you know, she's just a nice person and she's cool. And she's a mom and she's my age. And like, she's just cool. I've had a relationship with Ellen since she produced my talk show. And again, it's not like we're best friends, but she respects me. I understand her in a way. She understands me in a way. She's helped me with my relief work. So, you know, she's someone that it's like, we see each other, but I don't get, I mean, see as a very close friend, 
many celebrities that I know, I know a lot of different people. It's actually going to be hard for me to, Oh, Eric Stone street's a good friend of mine. Mark Cuban, if that's more of a business person, but he's a good, good friend of mine. Um, Ryan Murphy's a good friend of mine, like who I love and who I asked to just, I, I took a hail Mary pass. Cause they, they said, just would someone want to introduce you for this uh, award you're getting for the creative coalition in LA Emmy weekend, which is like a busy weekend for a Ryan Murphy type. And I just threw it out there and he said, yes. And I was like, mm. he's coming to like announce me. So, you know, people have been, I've had a really good relationship with cool people. I know Deborah Messing, like I'm not great friends with her, but she's very cool. And I really like her and she's just sort of easygoing. Yeah. Sort of randoms that I just connect with and become friendly with, but it's not like I'm hanging out with celebrities. Mm -hmm. It's just a fight. We see each other. Then we hang, we have a drink. I'm respected. I'll say that by people at that next level of celebrity. I'm definitely respected. I mean, I'll be shocked when I run into Reese Witherspoon. She's like, oh my God, Bethany, hey, I love everything you do. I'm like, oh my God, you know? So I'm not totally aware of people. Christina Aguilera, we're friends. I really like her a lot. She's mm. totally cool. She's amazing. Yeah. Like I, Billy Joel, I know through relief work and Matthew McConaughey's wife, I met through relief work. And you just meet all kinds of different people through all different means. Mm -hmm. If I can pick up on what you were saying about your your talk show too, um, I I was recently rewatching some clips of that as well because I remember when that was on, um, and now I'm thinking about you in another talk format, which is the podcast. One, I just like to know like who were like talkers like that you enjoy, you know, like what were your inspirations maybe when you were starting the podcast, but also the show because I I saw it go through a couple different iterations. You know, it's interesting when you're sitting there having a conversation with someone that feels akin to the podcast. Uh, but then there were elements that I feel like it almost seemed Ricky Lake-ish. There was a very funny clip recently that was going around online where someone was insulting another woman in the audience on the show and you make the guest get up and leave. And I don't think I'd ever seen that on like a talk show like that. And so that was very interesting to me. That's an interesting question. I'm glad you brought that whole thing up. You know, I'm realizing, and you guys have a podcast too, so you get this, that doing a talk show is directing traffic and you can't get meaty and you can't get deep and you got it. You know, it's totally cancel culture because talk shows mostly suck and don't do well. And it's like, hey, when we come back, we have a nice pumpkin pie recipe. Someone's coming out of the closet and Clorox has a few <laughs> messages. Right after the break. So you're like, okay. And then someone comes on and you're like, hi, how have you been balancing your summer? Oh, and I hear you have a new book out. Okay, hold on one second. We've had a big check for you because what you did was so amazing. And then, and by the second you get in there at 7.30 in the morning with a pit crew on you about what you want for lunch and your fucking makeup and your pin and your hair and your boobs are too down and we've had too many white guests, the, the black guests are raiding and now we only can have black guests. I'm like, I'm like the host of Soul Train. I'm like, it's okay. <laughs> like, we can also have white guests. Like, I am white. It's, I mean, we can have black guests, but like, guys, like, you can't just go where we had a Latino guest, so now we're only Spanish people. There's a Polish guest that works, so now we're only cooking Polish food for a month. Like, it's like, you can't be fear-based and, like, run after the whole thing. It's just like, take it fucking easy. But on a podcast and also on some, like, streaming television, you can let it breathe and work your way into it. And a talk show is exhausting. And they make it look easy. And it's just cheery. Mm -hmm. And you have to be in a good mood every day. And it doesn't matter how you really feel. It's just like, spin that wheel. And we're wearing a costume. And we're baking a cake. So it is needless to say, 
not for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I it's, it's, it's not for me. I'm not a traffic cop. And so it's not for me. Crossing guard coming. Am I coming back? Am I going? Mm-hmm. So, um, a podcast, you know, I have never, I've never listened to a podcast to this day, mm-hmm. uh, except for my own. Now I never subscribed for a podcast, obviously. And I didn't do that before. Someone on my team said, you should start listening. And I was like, I don't do that because I don't want to know what anyone's doing. I don't, when I wrote my book, Naturally Thin, I didn't read, become a nutritionist or read diet books because then I would have gotten into my own head. I just wanted to have a conversation. I don't think the show found itself until I first sat down in the chair and just started talking. And the minute I started, I booked a few guests of the caliber and the filter that I wanted, which meant that they would have to be a real gangster mogul business person who would started from the bottom, done it on their own, you know, not unlike me, but to the next level, like a, like a, like a mm-hmm. industry changer. And that I wanted to really keep that filter because it would then bring other people. It could be, it could be someone in science in in sports. It's not about being famous. I've had famous people come to us now a lot because we just booked someone really famous on the podcast, but I'm not going to say it until mm-hmm. it comes out, but like crazy booking. So, um, I, then started to realize like, what do I want to hear from these people? How, what do I want this conversation to be? And I want it to be about how do you garner that advice for people at home? How do you extract how different Dana White, the president of the UFC is from Mark Cuban, is from Andy Cohen, is from Paris Hilton, is from Maria Shriver. But they really all, they have so, so many differences and have taken such a different path, but there are some certain tenets and similarities between all of them and then between me and them. And I know these people already, and I had no idea that Andy Cohen and I both share the decisive gene. Like, boom, yes, keep it moving. No, like we are both very decisive. So that can work in motherhood and charity. It works in cooking and, and design, and it works in obviously business. So the other thing is Mark Cuban, you know, he was like, sales cures everything, meaning there's no business that doesn't require sales. So Dana White and I both come from a place of yes. I say it that way. His is don't fucking tell me no. Like there's no, no, figure it out. Don't tell me no. The answer is yes. You know, Paris Hilton and I agree on, it's about your team. You have to have a good team and you keep switching out and moving and it takes a long time to figure out who the right team is. And that also no one will ever work as hard as you will work on your business. So people at home can like take this all and put this in their toolbox and make their own toolbox for their own life and their own business. So I think that that's what the show really does in addition to humanizing these people. Mm-hmm. One lingering thing about the talk show before we move on from that is um, obviously one of the most viral clips from your show that people still meme is your Omarosa sit down. And have you run into her post that and do you have any lingering feelings from something like that turned into almost a housewives moment when you were trying to do something else no i don't even Mm -hmm. i literally i remember it but i don't think Mm -hmm. about it at all i really don't even know Mm -hmm. i don't i don't think about that at all congratulations great we don't think congratulations uh, to not think about (laughs) i think something that always uh fascinates me about you is you are as you noted very relatable, but also not intimidated by seemingly any situation or anybody. And those seem to be conflicting ideas, at least in the abstract. Are there situations in which you're intimidated? No, I'm not intimidated. I'm awake and prepared. So Mm. for example, I really do speak. I've spoken in front of 5,000 people. I do speak engagements all the time. I'm doing them now by Zoom. I'll go on any show, any talk show. I don't prepare one thing. I don't think about anything. I don't look anything unless I need to know how to spell, you know, pronounce someone's name 
or the name of a charity that I don't want to screw up. But for this podcast, these people are major and they don't have time. Like they, they have money. They don't have time. Mark Cuban doesn't have a damn minute of his day. Paris Hilton doesn't have a minute. They're giving me an hour. So I, the day before, and I, for this other person, I'll probably even do that more. For the day before, I get my research, just like have stuff printed out, and I take 25 minutes to just read about them, like what they're up to now, where they're from. You know, they could have been from Ohio, and there's something that reminds me of something, or they might have a philosophy about something that I didn't know. You know, and I take it seriously. So it's not intimidating. It's just... You're not going to be a clown when you're interviewing such serious people. So you're going to come and sit prepared and make it all meet. It's got, it's not no side dishes, no fluff, no dumb questions. It's really just like, let's get into this. It is no small talk. Mm-hmm. Take it seriously. So I'm not, in, I'm not intimidated, but I guess it's the closest thing to intimidation that it would be where you're just like, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to screw this thing up. Yeah. Lastly, um, a question that I have is, um, you were recently on Watch What Happens Live, um, which was fun. I got to do that myself recently, um, and Andy is such a pro. You, there was a moment in, I think, the you clarified in the Housewives reunion. Like He mentioned something about you gave him like a list of 30 names of people to potentially join the show, and you clarified that it was much smaller than that. Uh, but I remember watching this season. A lot of us just assumed that because you had suggested her that um, you and Leah had to be like really good friends. Um, and then we found out that you didn't really know her, but you suggested her. So my question is, when, when someone is asking you something like that, like what was going through your mind of people who you think are right for a kind of show like that? Someone who has something good enough to promote. Um, and you also think that like, Andy would vibe with them. The producers would vibe with them. The problem is I always do 10 times what I'm supposed to do, no matter what I'm doing. If I'm cooking, (laughs) I'm making a cocktail, I'm organizing, I'm washing my dogs. I'm doing relief work. I'm doing the housewives. I don't even have to do all that I do. And I'm always just doing it, you know? So when they email and say, you know, who do you have? I mean, I just throw names. I'll ask people, who do you have? Partially because the show is getting a little busted up and needs some fresh meat, but also because it's just who I am. So someone asks me and then I go down that rabbit hole. And so ask my friends, it's not that deep. And you have to, you, you think about who's going to reveal themselves. Who's a little bit of a train wreck. Who's, who's opinionated. Who would, judge? I don't think that deeply into it. You just sort of cast a net. But years ago, I remember I said about Aviva, I didn't know her either. Mm-hmm. She met, she cornered me on a street in the New Hamptons and told me she was up for it and wanted it and whatever. <laughs> and I reminded Andy and he said, I don't know if I've seen her tape. I said, she knows all the girls. She has one leg and her ex-husband has fucked three other housewives. I'm not really sure what else you need me to refer you for. Like, <laughs> I, I, was like I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I, I don't got much more than that. So that was her. And this was a girl that I gave. Yeah, I didn't give 30 people. I gave like seven people. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if I knew uh, a couple that I knew but mm-hmm. just other people that I was recommending. Um, but that became a big point of contention on the show mm-hmm. because everyone was supposed to sort of act like Tinsley and her were, were big, were friends first mm-hmm. and that I was sort of dead. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. <laughs> like I just uh. dissolved. And Dorinda was, Dorinda didn't like that. And that's part of Dorinda's reason for her season. She was, there was an underbelly of it for her being like, why, who cares? Like you met, you came through Bethany, but like, you know, I left the show. It left a mark and everyone seems to have healed from it now. But at the time in the moment, it was right before filming. I, I, and I just, 
walked, not in a contract or anything, it's totally my mm -hmm. right to, to leave, but it was just, I think, a little jarring for everyone because what I was getting paid, I think no one would ever have imagined I would walk away from. Mm -hmm. um, not that I would assume you would ever go back to that, but would you go back to filming something that does capture your life again? Is that something you feel like you enjoyed? The Big Shot with Bethany is very hybrid personal and business where I find my successor. There's a lot of personal in there. Mm -hmm. um, I'm producing a lot of content right now that I'm going to be putting in, on different channels right now. So it's sort of like my own ed TV. Mm -hmm. And that's where you're going to get a lot of that. Like that, you know, that's where a lot of that sort of me at home and the opposite of what people think my real life at home is really like. That's where that will be a little bit in different social channels and you know it, it helps to promote it's to promote my my products and my business but other networks right now i have that three other shows that probably will go at least two will go from big networks wanting different shows so i have a real tv business now in, in producing and owning shows and also in starring in them certain ones so it's really it's a good time it's right now this is like the precipice a lot it's popping off the way that it hasn't in over a decade. So it's really a nice time in my career. It's nice. I mean, awesome that you are so compelling as an on-screen person. But the, the Faye Dunaway and network half of your personality, I love too. I love the, the shot calling is just so addictive. Like you want to be around somebody like that making TV. It just seems like it happens. <laughs> oh, you mean I'm getting it done. Oh, yeah. Yes. I, I, I execute. I mean, there's literally, there's like the beautiful mind brand architecture plan on my wall oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. right now. So, uh, yeah, because the machinations of a business are the whole thing. And we think we've got it down because we've got a bunch of different dishes on the stove, but how do we combine them all to make one cohesive meal? And that's the real building of a brand. That's the real building of a career. And it takes a team and it takes enmeshment and it takes a connector and a smart person, to be honest with you, or someone organized. And if you don't know something, you better ask somebody. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Bethany. Thank you. Uh, and we've listened to the podcast too. And um, it's, I loved your um, conversation with Bozema. You, you did? Know, so, uh, yeah, yeah, it was really great. Yeah. I'm so happy. Did you listen to Paris yet? Let me know what you guys think about that one. No, we got to get on that. Yeah, we got to listen saw, to we Paris. Saw, we saw the doc, so we got to get on that. Yeah, because yeah. It's, she sounds, it's like she's not the same person that you know. That's what everyone's saying. Mm -hmm. So that's really cool. Right. And uh, your new episodes of Just Be drop every Tuesday, and they're available wherever you get your podcasts. So go listen to it. Yes. And you know, what do you guys say? Rate, subscribe, and review? Yeah. Is that what you guys say? Yeah. You know the language. So yeah, I'm learning the language, but yeah. I'm so excited. Thank you. I'm in your club now. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.
So sometime last week, and exactly when is still unclear, um, <laughs> our sicko president <laughs> got sick with a disease that has killed more than 200,000 Americans and counting. I'm talking about COVID, and we're talking about Trump, and he, and the rest of the White House, and the rest of the Republicans who are all at what has been to Aida's annoyance <laughs> called a super spreader <laughs> event. Uh, it was the confirmation party that they threw for Amy Coney Barrett. And um, turns out that he got COVID. A bunch of other people did. But Trump in particular was um, rushed to Walter Reed Hospital, put on oxygen, and it has basically turned into a version of The Apprentice where he is still filming himself in the hospital. He filmed himself leaving the hospital on Monday. It's a show, and it's theater, and it is a mess. It's also very controlled. I mean, because we're hearing all these conflicting reports of what people are saying around him, like how the Secret Service is afraid he's going to expose them to the virus. We heard Don Jr. maybe saying that his dad is acting crazy, and I've never heard Don Jr. say anything like that before. But more importantly, when I heard this news that he had it, and also Melania, by the way, whose progress we have not gotten any updates about. That's very strange. <laughs> Written out of the story. Yeah, right. After we heard the juiciest part, right, I did play finally by CC Peniston as loud as it can go. How do you oh feel God. about that? Right in front of my face. It's happening, you know? The best part about this was the immediate moment after we all found out that he had COVID. That was maybe one of the best days of the internet of the year. Uh, it was Twitter cathartic. had been cleansed. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> it was cathartic. It took a while before um, even Republicans and like other people on the right could like come in and call us mean for um, and evil for celebrating that he had caught COVID. Uh, it was even a while before um, people who love to do um, both sides um, on the left chimed in with their um we should be praying for the president's safety uh and that he gets well soon you know oh, we should be praying for the presidency's period. safety yeah <laughs> i couldn't stand the, the, the constant updates i know we need to know how the president's doing but cnn kept sending me updates like his oxygen levels are dropping i'm like girl tell me when he's dropping that's literally it. <laughs> that's the only time i want to know i mean you can't watch that rose garden ceremony and feel bad for them there's no social distancing the total disregard for the practices in place not wearing a mask as he has been doing the entire entire time and then now we're finding out that chris christie has it kellyanne conway has it bill steppy and all of these people hope hicks just the disregard and the like wanton lack of care pre him getting covid it's just been like girl you deserve that sit in that get sick again and it's funny it is yes is it all because hope hicks like got a little unmasked at a barbecue like is that really <laughs> the reason this, all <laughs> this guy has spent the past six months his reason to be is playing chicken with Corona, mm-hmm. and Corona got him. 
So zero. You have nothing going for you now. And not, nothing. not to be that conspiracy girl, but so if I'm tracking the timeline right, this time last week when we were recording Keep It, we found out that Trump had only paid $750 in taxes in 2016. And then the next day he gets coronavirus and goes to Walter Reed. And now we're not talking about his taxes at all. Of course, right. that is the nature of Trump's whole presidency is us just having collective amnesia about everything. But I just wanted to make sure that was the timeline. And that's not my, me conspiring. That's just me speaking facts. That was one of the things that was stressing me out though like everyone dipping into the conspiracy theory that he was creating COVID to stop talking about his taxes and I'm like have you seen the media? He was done talking about his taxes. Like, he like, never started. We 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 he never started. He we never weren't started. going to get anything else about his taxes. He loves talking about his taxes yeah. because he knows that, that we're never going to get his tax returns. Yeah. Right, right. Because no one's actually going to press him on it. No one in his party is going to press him on it. The media isn't going to press him on it. So this was something that was finally out of his control. And what was interesting was seeing that the ecosystem that he's created around himself was just sort of like trying to fix itself to get that control back. Mm -hmm. You know, you had people like Rachel Maddow immediately tweeting like, I hope the president and Melania get well soon. It's like this is a man who... Let over 200,000 Americans die of this disease. You don't, yeah. Has downplayed it. Who was revealed recently that he lied about the um, deadliness of this disease and has, by the way, been trying to um, suppress votes um, for the past year and more. Um, has And by been... the way, the misinformation campaign continues. He literally yes. now is saying... Things like, well, don't be afraid of it. I have it, and I've done all the research now. It's like, just because it happened to you doesn't mean 200,000 people aren't dead. Our listeners know all this. It just needs to be said out loud so that I don't like have a nervous breakdown. It's like, it's so insane the that you can continue the lie even after the personal experience with it. It's just, I'm so excited about Biden's polling numbers right now. I'm so excited about Biden's polling numbers. Right. Yeah. He's tweeting about the fucking flu, talking about how this kills people every year. You know, like they, they have shifted to a point where he got this fucking disease that he downplayed. And now the party line is, well, don't be afraid of it. <laughs> because I got it and I'm fine. It's so this is a this is the biggest problem in my opinion is that now Trump feels invincible in the face of corona and the GOP is going to be coughing into each other's fucking mouths because they think it's okay. <laughs> and like it's it's not like we're going to continue to deal with this pandemic with even more disregard and it, it's to Trump this is a feat that he's overcome coronavirus. Oh. Like now they're going to swap it like trading cards. It's just don't, ridiculous. Don't be afraid of covid. That is that is the problem. That's been the problem all fucking year. America has not been afraid of COVID, and we haven't actually dealt with COVID, and that is why we will still continue to fucking have it. And I just do not get the disconnect in, you know, now people talking about how manly it is to fight COVID, you know? Oh like, Lara Trump being like, he's going to beat COVID to a pulp, you know? You have people talking about how, like, he doesn't <laughs> need to wear a mask all the time, a huge one like Joe Biden. And so, like... <laughs> There are still people dying of this, and, and not all of them are going to be whisked into a helicopter and take it to Walter Reed and getting the best health care that money can afford. And what's interesting is when we didn't hear about Melania, uh, we certainly haven't been hearing about anyone else getting the care 
the way the president has, you know? Like, Chris Christie talked about how he was first hearing that he was exposed to it on the news, <laughs> and then he had to go and get a fucking test himself, he, he had and you know it wasn't a rapid one. Because it's Chris Christie. And don't forget, don't forget the fact that what outlives any fucking presidency is the staff of the White House. And mm-hmm. just like this country has seen black and brown people affected by this disease the most, that is also the makeup of the staff at the White House. And we know that he's infected two staff members um, that we've heard of so far. And then there's also the blatant disregard for the safety of the Secret Service for him to do his fucking... Um, North Korea COVID motorcade ride out the hospital. That is what made me almost have a nervous breakdown, <laughs> Lewis. You know, like I know, I know there is constantly something crazy from this fucking demon um, that will always make you just like go, huh, am I living in reality? <laughs> but a man in his hospital fighting a deadly disease, slathering makeup on, putting on a mask, Hopping in a <laughs> breathing car so hard <laughs> to be driven around the block to wave at his supporters. Fuck him. Right. That somebody would mistake that as presidential behavior. It's like you've seen Wheel of Fortune, right? Vanna does a lot of waving. Does that strike you as saving us? Yeah. And he can't even turn letters. No. <laughs> Please. Nor, nor spell the words. Or yes, look good right. in a dress. So um, I, I think my lowest moment in this whole situation was fucking Sean Connolly, the doctor, dodging questions and mm. answers about the supplemental oxygen like he was Uma Thurman and Kill Bill, just literally dodging <laughs> everything. And then I love, thank God for the lack of integrity in his whole administration and everyone that works for him because then Mark Meadows accidentally spilling the beans on how sick Trump actually was on camera. Like that was the actual real white housewives of the white house for me like that was the real that was the real drama of it all i guess it's just unfortunate that we have a president who just last week was um refusing to denounce white supremacy <laughs> and he gets sick with a disease that he has let basically murder americans um it's a serial killer he's let people die and he's evil and the media ecosystem, the political ecosystem, still reverted back to form of, oh, now we need to act like this is a regular human being, a regular president, someone with a soul that we need to care about, and you're awful for laughing about it, and you're awful for wishing that these awful, awful people were voted out, and if not voted out, wiped out like the fucking dinosaurs, (laughs) okay? God, do I wish this was the land before fucking time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. I can't wait till the GOP stands for the gone old party. Yeah, about that. <laughs> that is what I cannot wait. Go on passing. <laughs> gone old tyrannosaurs. Yeah, right. Uh, when we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. What are we keeping this week? Aida, you go first. I'm riled up. I'm riled up. Okay, well. It's are another, you riled up? <laughs> another week. Another Canadian man. <laughs> I am on a rampage this month. You're anti-Canadian. 
I might be. And honestly, Jim, Jim Carrey, after what he did on SNL, he might be next. So you know what? I have to tell you, I didn't hate Jim Carrey on SNL, though I wow. will say I was shocked at the weird direction of the opening on SNL. Like they kept messing up. The camera was on the wrong person constantly. That did not strike me as SNL level at all. I, I loved his voice, by the way. I thought he got Biden's voice, which is very interesting because you don't really even think of Biden's voice as one to latch onto yeah. and impersonate. But mm-hmm. then I do think that he got comfortable and then just started slipping into Jim Carrey and Liar Liar. Yeah, just Ace Ventura mm-hmm. vibes. Because <laughs> the direction was like, okay, you're playing Biden, but then Where's all this like physical comedy and like hissing at the camera coming from? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I guess we have a collective side keep it to that, to that performance, except for Lewis, of course. But I will, so my keep it, my real keep it this week goes to Drake, who keeps accidentally feeding this fire, this narrative that he dates and likes underage women, Mm. which I can't. Speak on it. So. Uh, 21 Savage, who I'm just happy he's welcome back in the country, is making (laughs) (laughs) made an album with Metro Boomin again. And he had a song called Mr. Right Now that features Drake. And on the song, Drake says the lyrics, oh, she want to fuck to some SZA. Wait, I used to date SZA back in 08. It's very Dr. Susie of him, but I'm glad that he's willing to put that out there. After the song was released, everyone on Twitter, one, was doubting the credibility of the relationship. Twitter is bored, and that's what they're known to do. But also pulled out the Goodwill Hunting and did the math and figured out that if this were to be true, that that means Sizzle was 17 when Drake was dating her in 2000. I was going to say, I don't think of SZA as someone who's like, you know, coming up on 40. That's a st- yeah. to reference when you dated her by year is a strange choice. <laughs> and negligent because SZA had to get on Twitter to be like, yo, yo, let me clean this up for this little man because we dated in 2009. In 2008, uh. I was 17. So maybe you don't want to be telling people that that happened, but I understand you don't want to sacrifice your little rhyme scheme because you wanted to rhyme with weight and eight is what rhymes. So that's why you lied on the track. And then after that, she goes and unfollows him. So you can kind of see, I mean, I was on my petty shit this week. You can see that there was, there was some malice there, but Drake is already someone who has been accused of having illicit relationships with younger women. Rumors of him potentially grooming women at the age of 18 and having a peculiar relationship with Millie Bobby Brown. The strangest thing. Mm. So I'm not alleging that Drake did any of these things. I don't know. But what I do know is that if that's the shit that you have over your head, maybe be a little more mindful of the things that you put into songs. I don't know. Do math. Do anything. Love. So Do the math, Drake. Yeah, do the math. (laughs) That's it. That's my keep it is just to his, you know, of course, the larger keep it is if he's actually doing these creepy things to stop. But the second one being just care about what you put out into this world a little bit. The wildest part about this is thinking about SZA being that old in 2008 and then remembering how old I was in 2008 because I was doing the math of like where I was in 2008. I'm like, oh, finishing college. I'm like, oh, wait, Drake and I are the same age. (laughs) <laughs> wow, right, wow, right. Yeah. yeah like like Lewis and I we're the same age as Drake so I'm like yeah it would be weird if I were texting Millie Bobby Brown except I do have a lot of questions about Enola Holmes <laughs> <laughs> I gotta watch that you like it right <laughs> I it, I really enjoyed it it was a good I'm hungover and not leaving the couch movie and mm-hmm. Fiona Shaw is doing what 
needs to be done. Love her lighting up so hard in these past few years. That's so <laughs> awesome. Um, but no, I'm always down for a Sherlock Holmes story. I'm obsessed mm-hmm. with the PBS Jeremy Brett in the 90s. You can watch that again and again. He was amazing. Also, it seems like we're going to get a Sherlock Holmes movie war now, by the way. Who and who? Because Netflix wants to do potentially a spinoff of, you know, Henry Cavill plays Sherlock Holmes in this yeah. movie. So you would get like a swole, beefy Sherlock Holmes. But I think Robert Downey Jr. in an interview was maybe talking about how he may want to go back to the Sherlock Holmes universe now that the Marvel is done. Well, that's odd. And I would like to hear the BBC side of it all, too, because Sherlock <laughs> Holmes was best done by Benedict Cumberbatch, in my opinion. But Right, mm. right, right. That's a Johnny Lee Miller, in my opinion. But yes. <laughs> I prefer oh, yeah. Lucy Liu, in my opinion. Yes. <laughs> Just to quickly wrap up the SZA thing is that I, you know, had always seen SZA as kind of this like scrappy twenty-three-year-old who came up in TDE with Kendrick and those guys, Schoolboy Q, that corner of of LA. Didn't know she was on the scene and someone who would have been dating Drake at the age of seventeen. So that's always an interesting thing to find out how embedded people are in the music industry and fame and how it's maybe a little more formulaic than we think it is behind the scenes. And by the way, SZA Oscar nominee. Never forget. She is. For what, girl? All the stars, right? Oh, yep. oh From yeah, Black yeah. Panther. I can't. Yeah. I can never forget. Mm-hmm. Which that I yes. remember that music video had a lot of conversation around it too for uh, maybe potentially stealing artwork from a younger artist. So, whew, maybe she got to share that Oscar nomination. Anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis. What's your keep it this week? Uh, my keep it is tentative because I always feel weird saying keep it to a trailer because there have been so many movies where I saw the trailer and thought it looked awful and then the movie was nothing like it or the trailer is amazing and then the movie is terrible. I am talking about Speed Racer, first of all. <laughs> Second of all. This is your brand <laughs> now, though, Lewis. Yeah, yeah people, right. ex- people expect you to say keep it to a trailer. Right, well, I mean, then I'm they want to hear the follow-up. Right, was he wrong? Well, yeah, this time... It's to the witches, which is unfortunate because <laughs> I think a couple years ago on Keep It, we were talking about reboots of Roald Dahl and how among Roald Dahl books, maybe the witches was the one likeliest to wow us because it's, mm-hmm. you know, lady driven and the 1990 movie gives you just one of the most freakish yet fabulous performances by somebody who I consider one of the greatest movie stars of all time, Angelica Houston. Mm-hmm. In this movie... Uh, which is very candy-colored and very super-saturated in the way that the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with Johnny Depp kind of was. You're getting Anne Hathaway as a campy, witchy goddess. And I have to tell you, as somebody who thinks Anne Hathaway is good in almost every movie, like between 95 and 100%, I still do think Anne Hathaway is best at playing characters who have no airs about them and are relatable. I'm talking about the Princess Diaries. I'm talking about the Devil Wears Prada. Mm -hmm. For her to go to a campy place, some people just have a natural sense of strange and droll about them, like Angelica Houston. Anne Hathaway, to me, seems like a smart, cool person, but not quite weird. Mm -hmm. Never Mm -hmm. really truly weird. And I think that's what's keeping me from loving this trailer right now and making me want to shy away from it, even though one of my favorite character actresses, Octavia Spencer, is also in it too. Um, I'm still recovering from what Ma was. I can't believe we have Ma. Um, that's just something you can you guys watch hanging out without you me? want. Yeah. You guys hanging out without me? Don't make me drink alone. This, conceptually, the idea of a black woman chasing a bunch of white kids is so far-fetched. <laughs> right, yeah. Like, I want to hang out. Okay. <laughs> and loving that Earth, Wind, and Fire song that much. Yeah. 
after hitting that woman. Who was that? Missy Pyle is who she hits on the road, right? Yes. Also, yes. there is a very disturbing scene in Ma with a prosthetic penis. Ooh. Right. They, Ooh. Th- I mean, Octavia was signed up for that shit. Anyway. <laughs> By the way, that was just making me think, why should she be playing the Angelica Houston role? Truly, mm-hmm. truly. Because you would love to see that from her. Absolutely. And I hope this gives everyone a reminder to revisit the catalog of Angelica Houston, not just her Oscar-winning turn in Pretzi's Honor, or not just the Addams Family movies, which I think is probably what she's best known for. You guys got to see this movie, Enemies, a Love Story, where it's this... Uh, I think I brought this up on the podcast before, but she was nominated for it, and she plays a a wife who comes back, and we think she's gone for good. It is a delicious performance. And also, of course, you got to read Angelica Houston's memoirs, which are some of the dishiest in recent memory, while we're on the topic of dishy memoirs. Um, If you want to hear about Jack Nicholson and which part of the house he stores the good cocaine, you got to read these (laughs) memoirs. (laughs) I would say that um, my favorite Angelica Houston role is um, The Grifters. Oh, please. First of all, she plays much older than she is in that. Or she's actually supposed to be somewhat young. She's John Cusack's mom. But that woman is 39 in that movie. And we basically <laughs> treated her like she was 67. So <laughs> That or Royal Bombs. Right. That endeared her to a new generation of straight men who love candy-colored movies. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the Wes Anderson movies that I do love. No, it is good. I think that's probably still the best one. Yeah. I enjoyed Moonrise Kingdom, too, but mainly just because of... Uh, Francis McDormand. Mm-hmm. It's sweet and wistful. Right, just like us. No wonder <laughs> we love it so much. <laughs> uh, also, she does great work in Material Girls. <laughs> okay, you said it. <laughs> and of course, the Nobel Prize she won for Smash. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Truly some of her worst work, actually. <laughs> no, she, she, she seemed um, adrift, shall we say. Adri- from, from the grifters to adrifters. Yeah. <laughs> she seemed like she showed up on the set for Smash and regretted it from the moment she signed the contract. <laughs> yes, definitely. I guess I'm going to be throwing a drink in someone's face every week. That's the bit that you've written for me. Okay, Teresa Rebeck. Yeah. <laughs> she is fearsome. Yeah. <laughs> One last thing about Octavia Spencer. When I saw the trailer, I would like to see a movie where Octavia Spencer is just wearing some jeans and a t-shirt. Sure. I'm, I'm tired of these dark, muted, colored um, period dresses that she is constantly wearing in every project. Yeah, she's going on a decade of that. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Give me something set in 2020, okay? Though I guess that's better than her old career where she played nurses like 50 times in a row or something. Wasn't that right. in her SNL monologue? Yeah. Ma is creepy, but then like she's also still like Sort of like a nurse, like she works at the vet's office. So, maybe come on. It's, maybe yeah. it's in her contract that she has to have a curved bob and hot comb bangs every time. <laughs> she refuses <laughs> to wear anything else. I said it before when we were dragging Shape of Water that she should have been the lead. I would love to see mm. her in a role like that. I mean, I get that she's a fun character actor, but like, when is Octavia going to be fucking on camera? Okay? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Take yeah. off. <laughs> the petticoat <laughs> and start knocking boots. <laughs> that movie is so interesting. When we started Keep It, we talked about The Shape of Water constantly, but really, it's a movie that fools you into believing it's going to be a really strange movie and it's a conventional fairy tale, ultimately. Mm. It's very whimsical. <laughs> Which, as we established, so are we. <laughs> Speaking of whimsy, my Keep It this week goes to this little Netflix show that you may have seen people talking about on Twitter all weekend. It is 
Emily in Paris. <laughs> now she wears outfits, is what I've gathered from that show. Yeah, she wears outfits in Paris and takes photos of them for Instagram. That is the show. Uh, Emily in Paris is the latest show by Darren Starr, you know, creator of Sex and the City, Beverly Hills 90210, um, and Younger. And it's basically Younger, but set in Paris. It is Lily Collins as um, an employee of Kate Walsh's. <laughs> and Kate Walsh is about to be transferred to Paris um, for her job. But then she puts on some perfume and then gets sick from it. And that's how she figures out that she's pregnant. And I guess being pregnant means she can't travel anymore. <laughs> um, so Those are the rules. Yeah, so Lily Collins instead is sent to Paris, and she doesn't speak any fucking French. And she's basically just like trying to fix this company's social media. And the social media that she does is really basic, like Instagrams of herself eating a croissant or like um, – French women smoking outside of a gym in their um, gym clothes. It is nonsense. And um, I watched every second of it. <laughs> what happened? I, yeah. I could not stop. I, the problem with this show is that everyone seemed to be agreeing that it was a mess, but also an addictive one. And I don't know if it's because like I just enjoy so many of the characters. Like There are a lot of really hot men in it for one uh and weirdly a man wants to fuck lily collins every time they interact with her but also i think i just miss paris <laughs> and i think so yeah. many people i think so many people were just sitting there watching it like either they miss paris or they want to go to paris they're like they're trapped at home and they're like oh god it feels like traveling <laughs> i was i was gonna wonder if it was like the bulk of ryan murphy's work that's not american horror story like the politician or ratchet where there's just something about the way it's filmed even there's a decadence about everything you're seeing mm -hmm. that you can't look away from yeah it's it's very very easy to consume it is just sort of like eating some ice cream that is not not particularly great you know it's not it's not jenny's um <laughs> but it's not horrible it's not vegan ice cream yeah you know <laughs> it's it's a ben and jerry's flavor that you didn't ask for but it's still ben and jerry so you can eat it strawberry cheesecake ben and jerry's fan right here by the way in case you mm. needed that on record i'm i love i'm a classic i do love chocolate chip cookie dough but i also love the american dream mm. Mm. me too i also think that's great what's jimmy fallon's yeah. called again because i tend to pick up that one the tonight blown I something what it's yeah. <laughs> tonight blown <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like... <laughs> it's something that rhymes with tonight show i think <laughs> The 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 cherry Garcia one though is is not for me. That's disgusting. No. I just don't like artificial fruit like that or any type of fruit mixed in with creams frozen. Just put it no, no, it's not good. Oh my god, the producer just jumped in to say it's the tonight dough. This is the kind of dramaturgy you get on this show. <laughs> the tonight yeah. dough. Well, le le leave it to Brian, who's on Jeopardy soon. Oh yeah. Look yes, for our producer this Friday that. on Jeopardy, damn it. I gave him tips. <laughs> Louis Vertel School for Gifted Jeopardy contestants. <laughs> for Where's ambitious the gay Jeopardy contestants. Yeah. Where is the spinoff of you training young gays to be on Jeopardy? You know what? That's a television show I would watch in a second. In a Same. Heartbeat. So With make a Sue Sylvester like yeah, yeah. crackdown on everybody. Yeah. Track suits. It would the be same like... track suit every episode. 
It'd be your version of Charm School. Oh my God, your lips to God's ears. <laughs> I, 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 imagine wanting to remake any other TV show. <laughs> See, when you do Jeopardy, the Jeopard comes back to bite. <laughs> or it's like when you do Jeopardy, you no, I don't have. I was going to say something about answering in the form of a question. Those are just the rules. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what happens when you do Jeopardy? <laughs> Uh, anyway, what a great show this week. Yeah, What's we had fun. On? We had fun. Yeah. Thank you to Bethany Frankel for being here. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll see you next week. Keep It is a production of Crooked Media, produced by Caroline Rustin. Ira Madison III is our executive producer. That's me. And Brian Samuel is our associate producer. Bill Lance is our editor, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Nar Melkonian, Milo Kim, and Matt DeGroote. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.